Hello and welcome to this PSG Think Big series podcast. In this program, Bruce Whitfield speaks to Yanni Durant about the future of business and opportunity in South Africa. Okay, welcome to our Think Big series brought to you by PSG. I'm Yvonne Borchett, a wealth manager at PSG. Our PSG is a leading financial services group with an extensive national footprint in South Africa and a presence in Namibia. Now, we've been in operation since 1998 and pride ourselves on providing a bigger picture approach to our clients' financial needs. Now, this includes asset management um, as well as short-term insurance. Now, we offer clients a wide range of insurance and investment products based on comprehensive advice. Our clients benefit from access to our own products and solutions, as well as a comprehensive list of third-party um, products. Think Big Series is a collection of dialogues um, with leading speakers hosted by award-winning financial journalist Bruce Whitfield. And we aim to bring our audiences independent insights that will, that will help them formulate their own opinions on some of the country's most pressing issues. Uncertainty and challenges continue to abound, but armed with knowledge, we are better to equip the way forward. Our social media campaign is hashtag ThinkBigPSG. This series is free, shareable, and open to anyone interested, whether you're a PSG client or not. In today's session, Bruce talks to Yanni Durant. Yanni is a former Chief Executive Officer of Venton Limited and currently a director of a number of companies, including Stell Group, MediClinic International, RCL Foods, and RMI Holdings Limited. Now, Rendro must be one of the best known companies listed on the JSE and has created a lot of wealth for investors over the years. Rendro still invests in businesses that have the potential to deliver superior earnings and dividend growth over the long term. Now, who better than this group CEO to talk to us about the future of business and opportunity in South Africa? So, without any further delay, I'd like to hand over to Bruce. Johan, thanks very much indeed. Yanni Durant, nice to have you with us this, uh, this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Give us a perspective, please, on how you see the state of South Africa at the moment. Well, it's a bit of a box of smarties sometimes, I think. It's some, some positive, some negative, and then sometimes you feel ambivalent, and then the Springboks win on Saturdays and you feel a lot better again and you have a nice barbecue or a braai and then everything seems to be quite all right. But it's actually, um, it goes through cycles. I think um, some good things happen, some bad things happen. But I, I always say it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a basket of things. What are the positives? What are the negatives? And then you weigh it up against one another and you actually make a decision of where should you invest? What capital allocation should you do? What can we do to help the government? And I think that is also the quite important thing is actually to engage with government. And Bruce, I must say, um, the one of the biggest positives that for me is over the last couple of years, the willingness and the, of government and, and government um, people to actually engage with us as business to, to try really to make things work. And that wasn't there for the previous seven years, that I can tell you for a fact. I know I got into a lot of trouble a while ago when I said, said to people, it's easier to meet with the presidents of some African countries than to meet with some of the local even municipal officials. And, and I got into a lot of trouble with a lot of flack from a lot of politicians. But that was actually true. But things have changed. Things are actually getting a bit better in the engagement process. 
That's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, the fact is you, you put your hand up and very few people in business are willing to criticize anything about government because it's the world of regulation, it's the world of lawmaking. Um, it's a, a really difficult fight to pick, but that seems to have paid off. I mean, sure, pain in the short term, sure, but if it's opened more doors in the longer term, that's a good thing, right? Absolutely. I can just give you a practical example. I mean, about three, four weeks ago, we managed to see, we, over a period of two days, we managed to see the presidency, the president, we managed to see the competition commission, we managed to see DTI as well as the Minister of Finance within the space of two days, and we set that up within a week. To be able to do that, I think it would have been impossible three, four years ago to do that. So it, I must give kudos to them in that regard. Not that I think they're doing everything right already, but at least they're listening. Um, and then, then somebody's going to pick up on this conversation. You see, white monopoly capital getting into uh, the boardrooms and getting into uh, into politics and getting into government. And clearly, this is to advance the interests of Rupert and white monopoly capital. You can't win, can you, sometimes? No, you can never win. It's got nothing to do with politics. It's just actually got something to do with maybe a possible inward investment to the country. Actually, it's a very positive thing for South Africa, possible inward investment. So it's got nothing to do with Rupert Capital or white monopoly capital. I just laugh sometimes when you hear all of those things and, and the ridiculousness about it. But yeah, it's something that you have to deal with. It, it is what it is. And I think, um, unfortunately, it will always be there in this. Luckily, um, through these years, I've got quite a thick skin. I think my chairman's got a thick skin as well, and he's not afraid to speak his mind either. No, exactly. And I, I wonder if the secret of success in South Africa is not ignoring the noise completely, but navigating the noise and understanding which noise to pay attention to and which noise to ignore. Because sometimes you can't ignore the noise. Sometimes you do have to put your blinkers on and just look forward. Yeah, correct. I mean, I think it's also important, although there are a lot of noise and people say, we, I mean, we're based in Stellenbosch and, we, and I must admit, we probably live in a little bit of a bubble down here in, in the Western Cape, especially in Stellenbosch. But even if the noise, you can't ignore all of it. I think sometimes, even if they speak 99 things that they talk about is nonsense, but maybe there's one or two truths coming out of that. So at least take some of these things. He asked, there are some legitimate concerns and make and listen to that at least. You can't say that. I mean, you know, in the business world, you get a lot of analysts, journalists, um, and things like that criticizing you and things like that. You can't just ignore it. Also, I mean, you do make mistakes as people. I mean, we all make mistakes and learn from those mistakes. And sometimes we are bad at pointing it out ourselves, difficult to, to actually pinpointing it ourselves. And sometimes better for other people to show you mistakes and then you can actually learn from them. Yeah, but yeah, there is a lot of noise. And I mean, if we just listen to the noise all the time, we'll get nothing done. There's that, but I also wonder just how destructive the noise levels in South Africa are to confidence and to um, investor confidence, for example. Our business confidence in South Africa has been more negative than positive in the last 15 years with good reason. We don't have a, a, a very strong sense of national self-confidence at the moment. Would you agree? No, I, I would agree with you totally on that. And clearly, I mean, when the pandemic struck it in the early 20s, I think it came here in March 2020 when we really got um, into the lockdown period. I mean, we were actually battling with a lot of headwinds. I mean, we didn't exactly have tailwinds behind it. We had low growth, high employment already, and then so it just got exaggerated by this whole pandemic. And then during the pandemic as well, we had some very blunt instruments and some very illogical things that we tried to combat. <laughs> and you, actually, it was like a compounding thing 
in that respect. And then we had what happened in, in KZN and Gauteng in certain areas with some of the unrest that happened there. And it's like compounding interest. I mean, it's like the seventh wonder or the eighth wonder of the world. You just put that on top of one another. And so, yes, it's actually the conference was eroded quite significantly. I mean, the GDP negative growth just out of the unrest people predicted between one and one and a half percent of what will flows out of that. But yes, I must say, then you always get positive against after that of the resilience of the South African people, how we reacted to that, how we actually cleaned up the cities and got together and we actually stopped it. So, yeah, as I said, there's a, sometimes there's a box of smarties. You never know which one is going to come out. You know, the thing is, the, the thing about a box of Smarties is I've never had a bad Smartie. They might look different, but they all taste the same. <laughs> um, when it comes to that sense of confidence in South Africa, one, and again, maybe I spend too much time on social media. So from the, the realist, from, from the social media bubble to the Stellenbosch bubble, um, does it feel like our extremes are getting more and more accentuated, a lot more hectic in your mind? Absolutely. Um, I don't think it's a South African phenomenon. It's a global thing. If you look at it um, in America, I mean, you've got Trump on the far right and then you've got Biden and some of um, Bernie on the far left. I think the middle is getting eroded and people to get their voices here is must either have a very controversial viewpoint, left or right. And the middle people are not being listened to. It's a, contro it's a controversy that actually sells. It's a, that's what's selling newspaper. That is what actually draws attention on social media. I mean, what, Good news doesn't sell newspapers. I mean, we all know about the fiasco. People can only report good news and the ratings drop. Interestingly, Bruce, what I saw is, I don't know if you see the latest um, figures in, in terms of uh, cable TV in America. It's, the, the ratings have dropped considerably since Trump is not president anymore. Because there are no controversies or big controversies anymore. It's quite a, it's quite a mental thing. And then people stop watching. And that is what the media and sometimes we actually have to feel a little bit is to get the ratings up and to report outliers, outlier viewpoints. And I think and that is unfortunately what is happening now. Um, the outliers are good and positive things. I mean, the outlier viewpoints of a Trump and you see Erdogan in Turkey and you see the guys in Hungary and you see an emergence of a right wing all over the place in the world and lunatic fringes left and right all over the world. Does the center hold long term? I mean, one, one has to believe that common sense prevails and South Africa is perhaps a good case study in the center sort of fraying quite significantly, but ultimately coming back to the middle again. Yeah, I think uh, over a long period of time, the center should hold if people are logical and think through it quite clearly. I think in, in the SA context, I think the center part of the ANC government, as well as if you look at the opposition, I think that will hold. They also have the biggest um, support. Um, I'm confident about that. I think if you look forward into America, if you look at the 7 million votes that Biden has won against um, against Trump, was because of the center that supported actually went across from the Trump side and a lot of Republicans supporting on the Democrat side. Unfortunately, as in any um, electoral system, things, the uh, checks and balances are not always there as well as how the, the seats are actually allocated. So you get a distorted view sometimes of these things. But I think overall, if, if, if elections are fair and Boundaries are drawn fair, the center should always be winning. But I mean, maybe sometimes I live in a bubble, in a cuckoo land, but that's what I believe. Most people are logical. Most people want to do good. But, but your, your middle and your bubble and your cloud cuckoo land still invests in South Africa. Still, the vast majority of the investments that Remgro makes are South African investments. And they are long-term 
new infrastructure, if you like, investment. So that suggests that you know something that many people in the advice industry, for example, perhaps don't. This very, very significant offshoring of wealth moves that's been happening in South Africa in the last couple of decades. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of capital have left the country. Um, I think if all markets were 100% perfect, nobody would have been able to make really money. I mean, that's why markets are imperfect. And South Africa is probably a good example of markets being imperfect. I mean, the areas that we've done well is also in areas where the government failed. Um, not just, I mean, look at the hospital group, Mediclinic. I mean, government failed to provide that, that services. Private sector steps in. Um, we're not in private education, but I mean, PSG has done some in, with Kira and things have done well out of that, where government fails. We, um, when we launched ETV in the late 90s, people said we we mad. I mean, no, really no free-to-air television stations really work, but we said we're going to compete against the SABC. So uh, that is why... We, Initially, we struggled, but now we're doing quite well. I mean, I mean, from a free-to-air point of view, we're quite happy with the results and what's coming out of ETVs. And the latest one that has been a huge success story is, um, is what we call our dark fiber, Rumatel, our fiber play. If you look at that, I mean, telecom should have been dominating the fiber space. They've got fiber all over the country. And we came in as late covers. We only started in 2006, seven years. I can't even remember when we started with a 5 million rand investment. Now it's worth over north of 20 billion rand. But of course, um, some of the government organizations felt and they give private sector opportunity. So by having all of these problems that we speak about, it creates opportunities for, let's call it maybe some, some wisdom, some investors that can see these opportunities and make some money in, in this environment. I mean, we all live here, we all want to make it work. And that's why I think it's uh, not just um, our duty to invest here, but I also think there are opportunities. But from yeah, a general point of view, I think people obviously diversify. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. We don't do it from a, from a Rembrandt point of view. A lot of underlying companies do invest offshore as well. Some with more success than others, but yeah, you do that. Well, let, let's talk about mistakes. I mean, you've, there are a number of touch points that you've raised and you've said, you know, everybody makes mistakes. We've made mistakes, you said earlier. Uh, and one of those underlying companies, you mentioned its great success in South Africa, that's MediClinic, has not covered itself in glory as many, many South African companies have not covered themselves in glory over many years in this almost desperate attempt to diversify out of South Africa. People have got hurt in the process and MediClinic is one of those. Absolutely. And maybe if you just, I mean, and you learn from those mistakes and you go back, I mean, I'm, I love history and I always love history and you learn from what has happened in history. And if you look at what Medicamic is, we had two, three operations. We had the Swiss operation that was bought in 2007. The Middle East operations were started in also in about 2007 plus minus. Um, I might get some of these dates um, wrong, but it's like, I'm not too far wrong. But we had a very successful operation in the Middle East. And then the opportunity came about that we could acquire El Noor. And what happened there, it was competing bit. And so we made a mistake that our complete due diligence, I mean, we couldn't pick up all the mistakes. And then we uncovered a lot of practices there in the Middle East after we've done the deal, because it was a competitive bit, it was two listed companies. You couldn't get all of those tick all the boxes, cross all the T's because of the competitiveness of it. And then we found out some, a lot of gremlins and we had to close down operations. We had to get rid of doctors that were not actually adhering to our ethical practices. So it put us four or five years back. 
uh, in that uh, respect. It's recovering quite nicely. Now you probably saw the latest trading update that we've been showing, but it, it costs us five years, not the last nine years of the Zuma year, but it, it costs us five years. The Swiss operation was actually going quite well, but it had my margins, but then the regulatory changes start. It's sometimes these things are inside your control, like in really, to be quite frank, in the Middle East, some of those things were inside our control. And some things are outside your control over the regulatory environment that just changed really overnight in, in the Swiss in, in Switzerland. Um, so you really that's why you like business when 80 to 90 percent of things are more in your control than outside your control. But that's the danger of regulated businesses, isn't it? I mean, often the margins are very rewarding and on the surface they look absolutely glorious. But when government calls the shots in industries, and we're seeing it happen, for example, in China at the moment, we've seen what's happened to technology companies, we've seen the prices of Nuspash and Process come under huge pressure because Chinese regulators have decided they want to take an economy in a different direction and off they go. And it's their call. You're invested in their space. <laughs> it's up to you to adapt, not to them. No, absolutely. It's always tough dealing with regulated um, industries. That's why we actually, we've always had a policy, we'll try and avoid them, but you can't really avoid some of these things. Even you think like we were in the tobacco years, I mean, we were, although we're not really regulated, but the government can impose a restriction on your advertising, excise. I mean, the biggest um, the sin industries are actually contributing so much to the fiscus. I mean, they shut it down during the COVID. I mean, they've lost so much revenue by <laughs> and creating new channels of um, illegal smuggling, illegal trading into the alcohol industry. It's actually just mind complete, mind boggling. Yes, so those, some of those things are outside your control if you just impose a ban on you. But in some regulated industries, if you take a long term view and you've got good relationship and you actually can show you can make a difference, you can actually make good money. Out of them but yeah it's 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 as you rightly say it's, it's a tough a lot of those things outside your control i mean I, chicken I talking, industry, yeah, yeah uh, let's talk i want to talk about chicken in just a bit because that's a global issue and a, and a big one but you mentioned smoking and you mentioned government shooting itself in the foot in terms of the in terms of excise i was just chatting to peter engelbrecht the other day the chief executive of Shoprite, who was saying they don't believe they will ever get all of the cigarette sales they lost um, in COVID uh, back again because people have changed their habits, they've changed their brands, they've changed where they shop, they've changed how they buy a product which is as easily available illicitly as it is in the shops. He's 100% correct. We think probably about 50% of um, the legal market is gone in, this, in the tobacco industry. I wouldn't say the same percentage in the liquor side, in the liquor side. Um, People smoke cheaper, so if you can buy a pack packet of cigarettes for 10 rand in front of the shop price or pay 40 rand inside, I mean, and it, it's the same one. Mm. You don't pay taxes on the one, you know it's illegal, you know they don't pay the taxes, so that's going to happen. So I think you're 100% right. What has happened with COVID, I mean, especially in the liquor industry, if you've, they've established these channel, illegal channels. I mean, once you establish an illegal channel, they, they, after COVID, people still quite lucrative, so they can keep going with it. When prohibition was happening in the state, they'd always had these, um, and they never disappeared. I mean, that's how the mafia started in New York in, in the Irish side, with really on the illegal um, yeah. liquor sales, and that's and they probably some of them are still happening today, going through decades on the that. You can create profitable and, and lucrative networks and people will exploit those networks in perpetuity until they get shut down. 
Um, in terms of liquor, now you've got a big stake in Distel, of course, which I learned the other day to my surprise that Distel is the second biggest maker of apple cider in the world, which blew my mind. I didn't know that um, in terms of Hunters and, uh, and Savannah. Um, but the, the real story there, of course, is Heineken, which for an awfully long time has been in discussions with Distel on a possible takeover. What is the state of play as far as you can disclose at this point? Now we're on the course, so I can't say anything really about it. So we're in discussions. I think the word takeover has never been mentioned in the course, so we're just in discussions. But I think it's fair to say that the discussions has been taking a lot longer than anticipated because of the pandemic, travel regulations, doing certain things. Also, I mean, you do have some red tape in government, but things, as I said, things are getting a little bit better there. But unfortunately, that's taken longer than we've anticipated. But we, from, from a distel point of view, and I'm speaking, I'm putting my, I'm chairman of distel, putting my chair, I hope we can conclude them as soon as possible. That is my chairman of distel that I'm putting on in that, in that respect. Uh, but it's interesting that Heineken is even vaguely interested. I was lucky enough to be in a room in Davos in January last year, just before the pandemic, and Tito Boweni and uh, a couple of other government ministers who were there were meeting foreign investors. There was an old toppy who liked gold, um, an American. He was in his 80s and uh, had been looking at gold for many years. There was somebody else. But there was a handful of people. One of them was the now former finance director of Heineken. And she had a full go at Tito Boweni about uh, water quality. Um, when it comes to beer, very important, and of course about electricity supply and saying your power cuts really hurt us. We then go into the lockdowns, of course, and then the booze bans and Heineken abandoned building a brand new brewery. They got one at Sedibeng, they were looking at another in KZN. Uh, it was a five billion rand or seven billion rand investment or something. It was significant. They've abandoned that, yet they remain interested in Distel. What is it about Distel that is so attractive? Yeah, I must say, I've, um, from a hunter's point of view, Savannah point of view, I have to make that statement. Yes, it's developing Stellenbosch, two of those brands, now this <laughs> number two and three in the world in terms of cider volume being sold. So remarkably successful, those two. And actually, and I think clearly from a, from a Heineken point of view, they like the brands that we've had. But I think the one thing that the pandemic proved, if you looked at the Stell portfolio of brands, actually what we say actually was suited to the lockdown. If you think about beer, where does beer get consumed? On consumption, it's at sports events, things like that. So beer took a lot harder hit than we did. Um, people were still drinking wine at home, drinking ciders at home, drinking um, whiskey, coke and brandy. So our portfolio was just too much more suited to the pandemic. And clearly, if you look at it from the population, only 49.7% of the world population are males. I mean, 50.3% are females. And females are not really beer drinkers they actually more suited to the to the outside side of the portfolio and so what happens in the pandemic husband and wife boyfriend girlfriend now they're actually together lockdown us and what do they think probably let lost less beer and more wine and things like that so it actually suited us and we came out remarkably strongly out of the pandemic and i think probably that also caught on the consultation and remember they are beer player they've got some cider and things like that and i think they just saw for for the african continent for south africa that our portfolio of brands are quite attractive 
Yeah, it, it, it's. I mean, and South Africa's liquor liquor industry, of course, is significant as an export agency as well. Um, and the you know, sales during the pandemic actually rose quite significantly. We saw it from wines of South Africa across the uh, the, the country's wine portfolios, and Distel also benefited actually perversely uh, from the lockdowns in terms of getting uh, an increase in export opportunities. Yes, yeah, and then the star performer there has always been Amarula. I mean, it's, it's been a wonderful brand, very strong performance from Amarula on the export side. We've also got in the, we bought about five, six years ago, three distilleries in Scotland, got some um, single malt whiskies there to perform very well. So our international portfolio did quite well, but the, the actual remarkable story about it still, the biggest growth area has been outside South Africa in Africa, Kenya operations and and Kenya did extremely well for us. We bought an operation there in conjunction with, with the government there, Paul, about a few years ago, three, four years ago. And gradually, over a period of time, we acquired control of that. And it's been a remarkable success story for us in Kenya. One of the few um, that we've done well of our investment into Africa. Is, is Africa outside of South Africa the future for South African corporates? I mean, I think there's quite a big divide at the moment as to whether it's Africa rising or Africa failing, whatever the economist happens to say next week. Um, we, we've seen lots of the banks withdraw from global markets and now drive more strongly into African markets. We've seen ShopRite go in and come back. Woolworths go in and come back. KFC go in and come back. Nando's try. Um, you know, all of these large companies have tried, but the logistics of the continent are probably the biggest constraint. And then also, finding the market, of course, that's big enough to absorb what you put into it. I think that's why you have to be very disciplined if you go into Africa. You need to look at the country. Does it be able to, is it worthwhile, firstly, to go in there? Does it, will it be able to make a difference to your business? Secondly, it does make it a lot easier if there's been a history of, regula of regulations, law-abiding citizens, education, infrastructure, if you move into, and clearly from a SA point of view, if they do speak English on a good level, it actually makes things a lot easier. So that's why I prefer the Eastern side of Africa to a lot more than the Western side of Africa. Um, we've been involved to a small bit in Nigeria, we've got a small operation there, virus still doing quite well, but would I bet the farm into going to Nigeria, one of those countries? No. Would I bet the farm in going to Kenya? No. But if you do it in a very disciplined and a very disciplined capital allocation model, that we this is not a let's put it with the 2020 World Cup soon. Let's not actually put it in that perspective. From a 2020 World Cup, when it's not a 2020 game, it's a five-day game, and it's, it's going a long-term game that you have to do. But I wouldn't say it's the future of South Africa, but I think it's um, it is something that you have to look at. It's on our doorstep, and but don't be arrogant about it. We need, we need economies north of our borders to succeed. I mean, we, yeah. in as much as we need to succeed, we need our neighbors and people in sub-Saharan Africa to thrive as much as they possibly can. And again, at the risk of seeming arrogant about it, it's in our best interests and in their best interests that we all do better. I'm not going to quote him 100% correct, but you're right. Um, Dr. Rupert always said, you can't sleep if your neighbor is hungry. So yeah. I'm a big proponent of actually that we should have a, a proper three, three trade zones south of the Sahara border. I think, I mean, 
Remember, every point of checking is a point of corruption. The frictional cost of moving things across border. I mean, what it costs economies, not just of Africa, but for our neighbors as well, moving things across by bridge, at cobbler's whip, and all of those things. I mean, the, the amount of cost involved with that and the amount of corruption that's been things there mm-hmm. is just, I think it must be running to billions of dollars. And what it does, it actually doesn't benefit the consumer. It only benefits a few people. And the consumer actually, because of that, pays more for the goods. And that's as simple as that. So I'm a big believer that we should have a free trade zone. No border posts, nothing like that. And let people actually uh, trade freely across that. Does, does the Africa Free Trade Agreement not go far enough on that respect? No, not at all. Not at all. So how I mean, how do you do free trade across borders and not have borders and deal with issues like immigration and all of that sort of stuff? Do you abandon all all, all border controls altogether? You so, drive home in the shower mad, by the way, if you propose. That. <laughs> Absolutely. Obviously, you start with a, a unified tax system. So you should what you should in the different countries. You should be the same tax rate, the same VAT rates. You still have your own central bank, your own SARS in, each, in every country. But at least there's no arbitrage between the different countries. Then if it's possible, not a common one, but it should be linked to a common, they say it can all be linked to the RAND, but it's not that we will take responsibility for the other currencies, but so it's all RAND linked. And I think from an immigration point of view, I think people can actually um, use their skills somewhere else, but it needs a work permit, and that's where law and order comes in. So if you, could, if you travel, I mean, that happens in Europe, but you need to have a work permit, you need to have a passport, an ID document, although you're Zimbabwean working in South Africa or South African working in Tanzania or in Kenya, at least it should just be law and order. And that, that will make things, I mean, if people, opportunities are there, people can export things to some of the other countries. I mean, Zimbabwe, the growth rate will, apart from if you not obviously get rid of the government, but you probably need, I mean, it's a huge country with huge potential, especially in terms of the fertility of their soil, of doing maize, agricultural. I think we will have a lot of South Africans going that way. And so from that point of view, if you can make it easier. How worried are you about law and order in South Africa? I mean, just the destruction of property over nine days in KZN and parts of uh, Gauteng stops only when people put up physical barriers and say, you don't come into this area, thank you very much, we will stop you. Um, and it got a little bit hairy from, uh, from time to time on that particular front. But I mean, it, it was very clearly um, a sign that the left hand didn't know what the right hand in government was doing and whether it was intelligence agencies, the military or the police, um, everybody else was sort of expecting everyone else to step up and do the work and nobody did. And that was deeply problematic, I think, for the security, personal security, sense of security of lots of people. No, absolutely. I think that is one of our biggest um, problems that we've got. My biggest problem actually is if we've actually got a breakdown in law and order or we've got something, I mean, so you actually find some corruption or a politician gets accused and goes to court. The amount of support that some of these people get is some people are actually condoning it. He's a hero, so it doesn't matter what he does. We can still support him, and that is what is. It seems like that is this inherent thing. People uh, loyalty doesn't matter what you do, and I'm not sure. I mean, and so some people said then it can die. It's actually quite all right to become a hero if you've done that, and that that is sometimes the worrying thing that I feel about it. I mean, with law and order, I just saw a statistic the other day. If you look at people employed by private security and things like that, and you compare it to the number of people in the police, I mean, it's like ten times the number of people are employed in private security. 
it was another business opportunity, as I've spoken about earlier, as people saw, but it's not the right business. That's not what no. you really want. <laughs> but yeah, yeah well, so... thank goodness, thank goodness it exists because yeah. our thin blue line is is very very thin, um, very and thin. Uh, and it needs all the support it can get. On to chicken. Um, chicken is a wonderful global business. Um, chicken is the most consumed animal protein in South Africa. I think the last time I looked, it was an average of 60 chickens per person per year in South Africa or thereabouts. Um, and, and there is this constant battle on um, you know, Americans like the breast meat and will dump their thighs and, and, and drumsticks in, in South Africa, um, which is great for KFC and, and, and others. Um, whereas, you know, we don't get necessarily a, free, a fair shake on chicken exports going the other way. That tension um is plays out quite vigorously i think in the south african protein market doesn't it absolutely if you um my numbers can i can be a few percent but north of 55 percent of protein consumed in south africa is chicken mm. if you look at similar if you look in china it's, it's actually pork <laughs> so it's, it's, but but the taste profile of south africans i mean we don't like breast meat we all like the boning chicken, we like the, the wings, we like the thighs, the bone, I mean, we like to eat of our hands, I think that's, that's a very South African thing, you take it off the roaster when you have a bra and you eat it, so that's what we love, and that's why, that's the taste profile of the South Africans, and so breast meat we don't consume in South Africa, but totally different taste profile in Europe, and that is actually where the problem lies. What happens if you produce a chicken in South Africa, we, in terms of the cost of a chicken produced, we're number five in the world of what we produce a chicken. Europe are multiples of us. It's more than double in certain instances of what they produce a chicken at. But they've got the ability to sell all their breast meat and then they recover all the costs and they make a profit just so selling the breast meat of the chicken. So the rest that they've got left of the chicken carcass actually costs them nothing. So for them to take it to South Africa is they just need to recover their shipping costs effectively and as long as they can just get rid of it and then they're fine. I mean, they can import certain things for eight rand a kilo. I mean, while their production cost is north of 50 rand in certain instances, but they, as long as they can just get some money back for that, and we can't compete with that, although our cost per chicken is a lot less, we can't sell because we're, what's the demand here? They want to sell our boning chicken. And, and, and that is just totally unfair. So you can't compete with that from a chicken point of view. So now if you look at the chicken industry in South Africa, Astral the biggest producer and the second biggest producer is, is the importers of, of chicken. And they only import one thing at a very low cost. But they don't sell it to the consumer at the low cost. They only sell it just below the price that we can produce it. And unfortunately, that is killing the chicken industry in South Africa. So um, what, what do you see as prospects then for RCL? No, no, I think we, the chicken master plan is working. I mean, localization of what is happening. That's why I said that the engagement of government is getting a lot better and we're getting some good feedback from that. I mean, you saw what happened with PPC and the cement site, localization. So it's something similar that needs to the people employed as agricultural thing. Maybe, Bruce, just to give you a practical example in terms of is Ghana. Ghana had the thriving chicken industry and then they opened up the borders. And today they've got no, no local chicken producer anymore in Ghana. So it's all imported chicken. And guess where do you find the most expensive chicken in South Africa? In Ghana. So they've destroyed the local industry and then they just put up their prices and now it's the most expensive area we can find chicken is in Ghana, in, in Africa. So it's the typical what we call predatory trade. 
Is there also not a danger, though, in creating protectionism in economies um, and, and protecting industries too much? Nigeria ran into this problem. I think they um, started banning imports in 2016 in terms of chicken and in terms of cement, I beg your pardon. Um, and now they, now parliament in Nigeria sort of saying, hold on a second, cement prices have gone through the roof. There's no competition. We, I look at this five years from now, we won't have enough competition in the South African market. And if infrastructure plans do go the way we hope they will, then we'll have cement shortages and prices will rocket up again. So if you're uncompetitive and you can't compete, on a, I think you should not be really be protected. But we've shown that on the chicken side, we're actually very competitive, just the way the markets are structured. Um, we also, I mean, from a sugar point of view, we know we're competitive from a sugar point of view. But I mean, you get sugar out of India that gets overproduced and they get dumped here at a lower than cost. Remember, inherently, in the agri um, I'll get to the steel, we've got a great steel company, but we inherently, in agri from an agricultural point of view, South Africa is such a huge disadvantage to the US, the Far East, the Middle East, Europe, and the main reason, subsidies. We don't get yeah. subsidies in the agricultural sector where there's all inherent subsidies. So you're starting, I mean, you're doing the 100 meter sprint, and they're starting at the 30 meter line, and you're starting at the zero meter line. That's why, I, I mean, we've got good farmers, we've got hardworking people, we've got the technology, we've got all of that, but we're starting 30 meters behind them in 100 yard dash. And unfortunately, that's that's what happened in the agricultural sector. Remember the influence of the unions in France, I mean, the UK, and of, of the agricultural unions is tremendously strong. And we haven't got the same thing here. Well, what is your view? And people look at you know, the strikes that happen. We've had recently a strike in the metalworking industry and concerns there about job losses into the future. And people are very, get very uptight about South African trades unions. I look at South African trades unions and occasionally things get very noisy, but there's not that same consistent 365 day, 24 hours, seven days a week pressure that one gets in many other countries from, from trade unions who appear to be far better organized and far more aggressive in their approaches. Yeah, I think we've, I think being going through a tough time, low economic growth, we're going through the pandemic, I think the, the power of the trade units have been diminished. I mean, Kusato membership is down and things like that. Um, most of our companies, we've actually, when we engaged during the pandemic, when we had to do salary cuts and things like that, they were, I must say, they were very mature, very logical, came to the party, and the relationship that we have with our trade units were tremendous in going through the tough times. and accepting pay cuts and we, we've reinstated salaries so i think that trust is starting to get a little bit better in that certain i was just astonished with the saa strike or something that i saw in the news i mean you just opened up a, a state-owned enterprise and suddenly the people are striking again so it, uh, it was i was flabbergasted yeah, even, yeah. Mm, it just yeah, maybe yeah. on the respeco side we talked about steel we were not competitive in and we got a company called respeco that's aluminium framing windows yeah. things like that and for a long period of time we were not competitive against imports and we were struggling in, in south africa we couldn't give the company away five seven years uh, to date we're north of a billion rand but we've inherited um, we've in installed new practices we looked at the market we've actually put people on bonus schemes all the employees every day they know what their bonus would be on productivity and things like that but by doing those things and engaging with the union and things like that you can actually make a huge difference. So even if you're not competitive just from a pure manufacturing point of view by being more effective on this on the production side, and you can, even if you buy the steel, things that are 
more expensive price, you can still the end product. We got good practices. You can be competitive if you close to your market. Um, people talk about manufacturing sector dying in South Africa, and I'm interested in your view because Mike Schussler, the economist, the other day was publishing statistics and saying um, and showing quite unequivocally that the number of people employed in manufacturing and the level of manufacturing contribution to the South African economy is half of what it was in 1969. Now, 1960s were a boom decade. We grew at an average of 6.9% during that decade every year, and the compounding effect of that was enormous. Um, we don't have that, you know, those wonderful tailwinds now. The state of manufacturing generally, the ability to compete with other manufacturers, particularly the juggernauts of China, Yes, I think if especially it's quite uh, it's quite relevant, especially if you look at heavy industries and where things is quite um, I would not say simple, but you can get economies of scale if it's a six by four door frame. I mean, you can't compete with the Chinese in economies of scale what they do. So we as Respeka will never compete with a normal door frame or a normal window frame. We'll do something with customization and things like that. So you'll always be on the back foot once you to scale, and I mean that's just a matter of fact and. What has happened also, if you look back in those, I was only born in the 60s, but clearly, I mean, the mining industry was booming. So a lot of the heavy industries was geared toward that ISCOR, if you remember, all of those things were geared, that type of heavy industry was geared toward the mining industries. And because of the, the impact of them has got a lot less, and clearly the output of the miners has become a lot less, I think the focus on that has shifted out, and all the talent is moving out of the heavy industries into the financial services type of industry. Young people don't go and study, most people go into those manufacturing, they all want to be investment banking wizards or data analysts or data science, so it's a, it's a movement of how people go and where you, you get your talent goes. So I wonder whether or not we can resurrect manufacturing because somehow we have to create jobs and governments are going to create jobs. They can have as many job creation programs as they like. You don't make jobs. Jobs happen as a result of growth and businesses that emerge and service the needs of, of whatever's happening in the economy. How do we get manufacturing resurrected in an environment where it's quite sub-economic in many cases to do large-scale manufacturing in a place like South Africa versus many other parts of the world? I wonder if you have any views on it. Absolutely. So I think it's, um, you must pick, as I said, pick your opportunities. I mean, you should never go and try and do television sets in South Africa or cell phone manufacturing. I mean, you're going to lose your shirt. Go and look at the opportunities. I think where we can do be good, as I said, with Speco. Chicken, I mean, we're number three, five in the world. Sugar, we also in the top 10 of low-cost producers. Look at those areas where you can be competitive, and it's not big scale things. It could some of these smaller specific things that you can look. I mean, a lot of the things. I mean, edit equipment of telecommunications things that they can outsource. Here, some specialized, not huge amount of things, specialized things, and then I think I think quite clearly from the point of view, something that is actually need to have some localization, some adapt need some adapt. adapt need to be adapted for a specific country that you can do. So go and look at those opportunities where you don't have to compete against the Chinese. And what? And if you need some of the things, import yourself. I mean, if you've got a manufacturing operation like we've got at Prospecto, some of the things we import ourselves, we actually import things from China and then we adapt them here for the local market conditions. Yeah, but I think if you try and go and compete with China and heavy industries of huge scale, you're not going to make, you're not going to be competitive. Do we beneficiate enough? And whenever we think of beneficiation, we think that, you know, 
Um, I think where were the big diamond cutters? Rotterdam or Antwerp? Antwerp. I mean, Antwerp made more money out of South African diamonds than South Africa made out of diamonds, for example. We, we, we've been really poor at beneficiation, but there is so much more to beneficiate than just the minerals out of the earth, whether you look at rooibos opportunities or whether you look at wine opportunities or brandy opportunities, whatever it might be. We have got stuff in South Africa that is unique to us. Um, that we often export in bulk rather than add the value to and then send out into the world. No, no, 100% correct. I mean, maybe I'm just going back to the examples that are much more familiar with, okay, make it practical, but if we were allowed to export chicken to the world and the, the market's open to us, I mean, what we can do, we can actually, the value added things that we can do, the chickens here and export it a lot cheaper than what we, if we can deliver a chicken breast into Europe, but we are not allowed to do that. If we can deliver a pork rib or something like that, or export some meat opportunity value added here, but we're not allowed to do that in the chicken industry. They, and certainly there must be other industries that we, you can do exactly, exactly the same. Give me a five year view as to where you think economic growth is happening. This year, IMF is agreeing with the Reserve Bank that growth is going to be pretty close to 5%. It's what friends of mine in economics call the dead cat bounce after year, last year's 6.5-7% decline. We recover you know, from 93, we go up to about 96, 97 maybe, uh, percent of what we were in, in 2019. People are quite worried about economic growth and without growth we don't get the one and a half million jobs we've lost back i'm, I'm wondering how you're feeling about prospects in the next five years i think we would do well if we if the rengra year in is, is june 20 our next year it will be june 2022 i think we would do quite well if we can get back to pre-pandemic levels on a profitability point of view so it means the underlying companies which really it's quite a good reflection of the economy if you think from financial services, from um, infrastructure, fast moving consumer goods, if we can get our results back to in 2020, I'm talking this financial year to before pre pandemic, I think we would have done well. So, we, so that puts us back to where we were plus minus. If not, we should be back by 2023. Um, and then what our prediction going forward, especially in the industries that we're, we're in, we think we will outgrow the economy. Um, and I think because we've got, we actually invested into the right pockets where there's higher growth in certain areas. Unfortunately, I think if we don't do certain things correct in South Africa, I think the South African economy will lack a rainbow growth. And so specific reasons that we, we all know about it, but these infrastructure bottlenecks, I mean, on the roads, in the harvest, what we see at the moment, I mean, I, I feel so sorry for the citrus producers. but I mean, half of the the crop they can't export and remember it's not like apples or citrus things you can't store in cold storage so it's actually going to be fraught so it's a so it's those type of bottlenecks that will actually hamper the south african economy and i'm not talking even talking about the long-term 10 15 year view about education there are short-term fixes but the short-term fixes will only address certain things it won't address all of those things to a large extent so i i think probably going i mean Two, two and a half percent, getting to three percent will be a bonus. 
Yeah. But, but in, in those problems are also the opportunities. You talk about crisis breeding opportunity. Those are my words, not yours, but you express that sentiment. And when Portia Darby, who's sitting at Transnet now, knows she needs 100 billion rand to get the ports up and running, to get them from the bottom performers in the world, slightly further up the ranks, and to make it more possible for the citrus producers of the Sundays River Valley and, and Ceres and other parts of the world to get their citrus out of the country. And they, they're struggling at the moment. Uh, the fact is that you know, you've got private sector bankers who are saying, we will fund that 100 billion. We're more than happy to, but we need to be certain of a return profile. Those are the big adult conversations that I'm hoping are being held between the private sector and government, and that there is a recognition and an action being taken on those conversations. You must be part of some of those. Yes, um, I can use you and give you another example of through Grindrot, we're operating the Maput, some of the terminals in Maputa, we've got the concessions. So there you can actually put in gearing because it's run by competent professional people. And it's a good operation that runs out of Maputa. So if you can do the same thing at the harbor, and the harbor terminals, Grindrot also operates. So I think it's absolutely the right way to go. But then you must put in the base management team. It mustn't be hampered by red type, government type. So it must be put into a special purpose vehicle, it must be independent, run independently. And in that, it must be ring fence that you can raise the financing to do these things and actually alleviate these bottlenecks. And I think that is absolutely critical. And so those are the right conversations happening now. I mean, and that needs to happen more and more as we go forward. So and I'm, how, not, I'm just afraid it sometimes it do take too long. I think a lot yeah. of these things we can speed up. And then also the digital infrastructure of the country. You guys, through Buma and other investments, very uh, are intimately involved in digital infrastructure. We see Google and Amazon um, you know, making bigger pipes, for want of a better term, available around the African continent, speeding our access to the world. Um, and, and that is digital infrastructure is, of course, uh, you know, what did they say? Data is the new gold. Well, yeah, digital access, I suppose, is the new oxygen. If you don't have it, you are going to... You are going to you are going to die. No, the first thing when the Wi-Fi goes down in my house, my kids started screaming. <laughs> what is happening? Who's switched off the Wi-Fi? Exactly. No, no. Um, it's and the thing about the digital thing and, and the bandwidth that we're actually rolling out in South Africa, it can make a huge difference to education. We can get one of the things that we're trying to do in the areas that we operate is to give every time we pass with a with fiber next to a school, we give the school also fiber. And that's one of the CSI projects. I mean, if you can get education, knowledge into the schools, and then you can actually start streaming lectures into these schools. If we can get just get rid of the unions of the school that actually preventing us from doing that. I can give you a perfect example. I mean, the Stellenbosch University got us, where they actually want to teach grade 11 to 12 maths and science, but they're not allowed to do it during school hours. They must do it over weekends, and they do it via satellite in the schools because the unions prevent them from doing that. So they can have the best teachers doing the best lessons and, and it's a struggle refunding some of those things to help them it's a, it's a wonderful project um so and i think data can be a, such a huge enabler to actually get the education profile and get the best teachers and get people to learn out there and we can just utilize that properly and get the education department on board and get the give less power to the unions in that respect on that note, we're going to have to leave it. But I, I thank you very much indeed, Yannick Grant. I mean, what a wonderful, wide-ranging problem-solving discussion we've had this morning. It's been a great pleasure having you. Thank you so much for sharing your, your insights and your wisdom with us. Johan, back to you. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you, Bruce and Yanni, for your valuable inputs regarding the future of business opportunities within South Africa. 
A special thanks goes to you, Yanni, and the rest of the Ringro board and management for what Ringro has done for all South Africans over the last few decades. Now, a skilled and trusted financial advisor can be invaluable during these uncertain times. They can provide objective insights and help you consider alternative scenarios so you can make rational decisions on your wealth and insurance portfolios. If you have an advisor, I encourage you to engage with them. And if you don't, then please get in touch with us. We would also welcome your feedback. So please um, do communicate with us and be sure to register for our next exciting speaker in the Think Big series, where we will be talking to Hugo Pinar, the Chief Economist at the Bureau of Economic Research um, on the future of South Africa's economic landscape. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this PSG Think Big series podcast. Please do look out for more titles in this series.